Hi, everyone. This is Jeff uh, with uh, People Conversations, and tonight I am talking with Lauren Steiner, who is a delegate from California. Um, and uh, we were we wanted to see uh, compare our experiences at the DNC. I'm a delegate in New Jersey. She's a delegate in California. And Lauren, thank you very much for joining us and contacting me and expressing some interest in talking. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, you were in you were at the DNC. Did you arrive on what on Sunday and then just go home right on Friday morning? Nope. I actually arro- arro- arrived on Friday because it takes all day to get there from Los Angeles, and I came early because I wanted to attend the People's Convention, which was on Saturday, and then there was the Climate March on Sunday. And then after the convention, I went for a little vacation because I'd worked solidly on Bernie's campaign for over a year. So I went to visit some friends on Martha's Vineyard for three days. <laughs> what state is Martha's Vineyard in? In Massachusetts. It's an island off of Massachusetts. And uh, a few days after I left, Obama came for his two-week vacation. Oh, really? Yeah, I actually tried to organize the TP pro- TPP protest there kind of remotely but it was very difficult to get people to the island, and only three people showed up. But it was kind of creative. We called it Golf with Obama, because when he goes to Martha's Vineyard every summer for his vacation, all he does is go golfing and walk on the beach and, you know, hobnob with the 1% there. And so we made it kind of funny, like, um, you know, dress in your golf clothes, take the ferry over a nice 45-minute ride over the sound and do a two-mile march to the golf club, and we will tweet him an invitation to play golf with us because it seems like he plays golf with the 1% and does their bidding, so maybe he should play golf with the 99%. It was kind of cute, you know, but it didn't really work out because, like I said, it was a big a big um, journey to get there to the, Mar- to the island. So, right. Yeah. But we have to keep the pressure up, and we decided to keep the group together, the delegates that planned the PPP protest. We started a Facebook group, and I'm actually organizing a conference call for Tuesday night, and we're doing another protest up in Lake Tahoe on Wednesday. So we are very energized to keep up the pressure. So uh, TPP is your issue? Yeah, it's been an issue of mine since I found out about it in the spring of 2012. 2012, wow. 2012, yes. Somebody invited me to a protest, and it was on the medical issue, the fact that um, Big Pharma gets to extend their patents on brand-name drugs, which delays the introduction of life-saving generic AIDS drugs and anti-cancer drugs. So this protest related to AIDS, and it just kind of was the first time I even heard about this TPP. And then I found out that the... um, the next round of talks was happening in San Diego. Um, I think it might have even been later that month or maybe a couple months later. And the Occupy movement, which I was a part of, was in full swing. So I organized um, two passenger vans, you know, 15 people each, and we took Occupy members of Occupy LA down to San Diego where we marched through the gas lamp district over to the hotel where they were having the talk. And that was, I think, the summer of 2012. And then the next thing I did, this was my biggest TPP protest, was in 
November of 2013, and Obama was coming for a fundraiser at Magic Johnson and Hayam Saban's houses. And it's really funny because just this past Monday, um, Hillary Clinton came for a fundraiser at those very same two houses, and we organized a protest um, called Tell Hillary uh, Palestinian Human Rights Are Not For Sale because Haim Saban is her biggest donor. He's given her $10 million, and he famously said, I'm a one-issue guy and my issue is Israel. And as a result of that, she's had a very hard-line approach, and as you probably know, her delegates and the DNC delegates, or I should say appointees to the platform committee, prevented all of Bernie's amendments regarding Palestinian human rights from getting into the platform. And in terms of pressure from people like Haim Saban and AIPAC, you know, who's bidding, I think Hillary does. But this protest that we did uh, against Obama, I say it was my most successful because we, we had 250 people there, and we had a big rally in the park, and we had lots of great props and banners. And Occupy Venice made this um, TPP train that had Obama in the front driving the train, and all the corporate logos were on the side of the train. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we had the Light Brigade people, you know, those lighted letters that say no TPP. We had the Los Angeles letters, and we had the San Diego letters, and we marched up to this intersection that leads to the um, house, because we can't get to the house, because it's in a gated community. I mean, these are literally uh, 20,000-square-foot minimum houses that start at $20 million. I mean, that's how wealthy these people are. So um, I've done protests at this same location many times on various issues, because this street is on um, Benedict Canyon Drive, which is a main thoroughfare during rush hour. So in addition to Hillary, you know, the people in the motorcade, whether it's Obama's or Hillary's motorcade and all the guests going up there, we also have a lot of passers-by, commuters, going from L.A. to the valley using this, you know, road. So it's a very strategic location to do protests. And... Um, I also did a creative protest at Javier Becerra's office. He's a congressman from Los Angeles, and we were worried that he was not going to oppose TPP fast track. So I was talking to some of the people in the listserv that I'm on, all these different organizations that fight the TPP, and I said, what are some creative protests that have been done that's more than just standing outside with signs? And they said, oh, well, they did a great protest in Oregon with Ron Wyden's office where they went in to outsource his office. In other words, to outsource it to another country because if the TPP passes, um, we won't need Congress because uh, the laws would override, you know, um, our laws. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of did a similar one, which we called outsourcing (coughs) Javier Becerra, and I went to the uh, you know moving company, and the biggest moving box I could find was a wardrobe box, and it's only four feet tall. So we had to get somebody's kid to fit in the box. And we got these two guys from Occupy Venice to put on, like, they had their orange jumpsuits, which they used for some Guantanamo Bay protest. But we took them, and on the back we put TPP movers, and we had a van that Occupy Venice used, and on the side we painted TPP movers. And, the, and we just did this little skit where I was the, um, I played Stephanie Jobs, which was uh, the relocation manager for TPP Movers, 
and my friend Walker Foley from Food and Water Watch played, um, uh, what was his name? Um, well, he played a reporter, uh, Biff, that was it, Biff Walker from Pox News, and we took one of those little microphone things and put P-O-X on the side, and he was interviewing me about, you know, this little um, action that we were doing, and um, it was really kind of funny, and I put it on my YouTube channel, and it got seen many times, and... Uh, yeah, how, did so this kid, how did the kid fit in? The kid, we just put him, you know those wardrobe <laughs> box where the side sort of opens down and then you could put a bar in and hang your clothing? Mm-hmm. So the kid got in the wardrobe box and then we taped it up and we had him banging, you know, let me out of here, let me out of here. And uh, the the guys who were playing the movie said, oh, don't worry, Becerra, you're going to love it in Vietnam, the weather's great. And uh, but he and he's saying from inside the box, but Vietnamese food doesn't agree with me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it was just a little creative thing. And then I did one at Michelle Obama's fundraiser and another gated community in Hancock Park. So <clears throat> I've been, you know, the TPP has been one of my, I would say, my top three issues. Since, could um, could you could you send me the link of that video oh, um, so I could post it in the description? Yeah, absolutely. And then I made another video from that day because we got locked out of his office. Um, we were really, you know, I went there early in the day to see if we could come in. Not that he was in there, but if we could meet with one of his representatives. And they said, no, you know, we'll come out. We'll come out and watch your protest. And then they never did. So we had some people at the protest who were actual constituents of him, and they wanted to go in and meet with him. And the funny thing is, his office is in the Chamber of Commerce building. And the Chamber of Commerce um, said that it was their highest legislative priority to pass the TPP because under the leadership of Tom Donahue, uh, they've taken it from a sleepy little organization that sort of represented Main Street businesses to be an organization that really represents the top 100 multinational corporations. So that's why the TPP is a high priority for them. So uh, we had done a protest there um, Jerry Brown was there, and we did a fracking protest, and the same thing happened. The Chamber of Commerce locked the door, and the same security guard, you know, every time I go there, he sees me, and I'm like, oh, it's you again, and he's standing there guarding the door, and we're saying, why can't we get in? We have a few constituents. We're not violent, and the LAPD comes along, and, and so we're, you know, because ha- we were making this skit. I had three different cameramen, you know, because we were covering it from different angles, so I had all these different cameramen just kind of covering the continuation of this. It went from a protest to a skit to trying to get into the damn office. And so the woman cop says to me, uh, you know, Lauren, why don't you just stay out here and protest like you said you would? And I said, well, you know, um, because we have constituents that want to meet with their congressmen and we're being locked out. And she says, well, let me call the Chamber of Commerce and see if they'll, you know, if he can meet with you. And so I look at the camera and I say, Okay, you heard that. This woman who represents the public agency, the Los Angeles Police Department, just told us that she had to call the head of the Chamber of Commerce, which represents the top 100 corporations in America, to see if we can meet with our congressman. I said, that is really telling. You know, do you want to rephrase that? And so the, the, the cop who is in charge of, well, I think he just retired, Sergeant Baker, he knows me, too, because of all the protests I do. He said, uh, Lauren, now you know, um, she said to you, meaning the, the 
representative of the Congress, and she said to you that they don't really have the expertise to ha answer your questions, and you really should be speaking to the people in the Washington, D.C. office. So I'm looking and I'm saying, well, unfortunately, the 99% cannot afford to fly down to Washington, D.C. to uh, lobby our congressmen the way, you know, the corporations can. You know, they have paid people that are working down there and are in Capitol Hill every day lobbying. I said, all we have is the district representative, and she should really see us. So he says, well, you know, she wants you to make an appointment. So we have the guy call on the phone, and he says, uh, well, she's not, can we make an appointment now? Because she's there and we're here. Oh, no, you can't make an appointment now. You've got to make it for another time. Well, can we speak to her? No, we'll have her call you back to make the appointment. And so the way I edited that video was at the end of it, it said four days later, David Lara is still waiting for his call from the congressman's representative. And Anything ever come of it? No, no. But, but Sarah did vote against Fast Track. So, you know, we think that the, the, the Los Angeles, we've been told um, by organizations like Food and Water Watch, Citizens Trade Campaign, that we don't have to really be lobbying any of our congressmen here in Los Angeles area because they're all planning to vote against it. But quite frankly, I don't trust any of them. And what I'd like to do is get them on videotape saying that they would vote no on the TPP. And um, not only that, I want them to commit to lobbying their fellow Congress people who did vote for Fast Track. There were 26 Democrats who voted for Fast Track. Now, a lot of them are lame duck, and apparently these are who Obama is courting because they leave office in January. They don't have to be answerable to their uh, voters anymore, but they are probably trying to get big corporate jobs, you know, which so many congressmen do. It's the whole revolving door thing. Um, they become lobbyists. So um, that's going to be really difficult. But Trump has sort of given us a gift in that he is opposed to the TPP, or at least he says he is. You never can believe anything that he says. It's one of the few things so, he has not flip-flopped on. Well, if he was so opposed to, you know, outsourcing, he would make his own ties and clothing in the United States instead of in China and Bangladesh. So... I mean, I think he's just seized upon this because he sees it's a very good populist issue. But unlike Bernie, who's been fighting these free trade agreements, you know, since they started, Obama, you know, Trump has just come late to this. However, he was successful in taking support for the TPP out of the Republican platform, and we couldn't even get opposition to the TPP into the Democratic platform. And everybody wonders, you know, why is that so? If Hillary really, you know, is opposed to the TPP, you know, why wouldn't she allow those words to be in there? Ben Jealous's amendment to the Saunders Amendment. All he wanted to do was add these little words, and that's why we oppose the TPP. Well, the answer is because Hillary really doesn't oppose the TPP. I happen to be watching MSNBC one night, as I do most nights that I'm home, and I saw Lawrence O'Donnell interview Joel Benenson, who is uh, Hillary Clinton's chief strategist, and he was asking him, he said, will she drop the TPP? They were talking about trade. Will she drop the TPP or will she renegotiate it? And he said she will renegotiate it. So you'll notice the way she has um, framed her opposition to the TPP is that I can't support what is in this agreement. So, as is, it's actually, I believe the wording is, is something like, as it is currently written, I cannot support it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the well, news spun that as, 
she's against it, but she's right. never said that, but she's never corrected them to right. give people the impression that she's against it. So I saw Tim Kaine when I was walking over to the Marriott, which is where the California delegation was, and he was coming out of the Lowe's Hotel, which was across the street. I guess he was staying there, meeting, having a meeting there, and there were all his burly, you know, um, Secret Service guys protecting him. And I look at him, and I'm not one for being polite. I mean, none of these people impressed me. And I didn't say anything like, oh, you know, Senator Kane or whatever his title is, you know, I'm Lauren Steiner, I'm a delegate, happy to meet you, blah, blah, blah. I just looked at him, I pointed my finger at him, and I said, no TPP. And he was kind of shocked, and he said, he said um, you're right, you know, no, no TPP. And I said, um, no, I'm serious. We have to make sure that it doesn't come up for a vote in the lame duck session. And he said, don't worry, it won't. And I remember posting that right to Facebook because I wanted to remember how he actually, you know, phrased it. But it's funny because two days before he was announced to be her vice president, he was supporting the TPP. Of course. I want to ask you, since we have a limited time here, what is it about the TPP that you don't like? Well, I mean, there's so much about the TPP that I don't like. I mean, it's bad for consumers because it extends, you know, uh, uh, patents on brand name drugs. It it extends uh, copyrights for, um, you know, musicians and filmmakers so that they don't even get back the rights to their own work until after they're dead. Um, It's bad for the environment because... It supersedes, you know, the investor state dispute uh, settlement clause supersedes um, local environmental laws. Like right now, uh, Lone Pine Resources is suing the province of Quebec from uh, because they ban fracking. So they're suing them for $250 million loss of expected loss of future profits. So the same thing is happening. TransCanada just sued the United States for rejecting the Keystone Pipeline for $15 billion. Brian just said that last night on his Our Revolution live stream. Excuse me? Bernie Sanders uh, talked just about that exact issue last night on his Our Revolution live stream. Right, and Obama has said that we've never had to overturn a law because of anything in a trade agreement, and that is patently false because we had a law called the Country of Origin Labeling Act, which uh, required that meat producers put a label on the package saying where that meat came from because, you know, some other countries don't have the same kind of food safety standards that we have. So one of the countries, I don't remember which one it was, sued under some trade agreement. I don't remember which one it was. And Tom Vilsack, our agriculture secretary, has actually been telling people, meat producers, that they have to take the label off. So, you know, this is the other thing. It's um, really bad for national sovereignty because it makes corporations more powerful than governments. And it's not just environmental laws. It's every kind of law. Right. you said, the the origin of meat, child safety laws, workplace safety laws, uh, I mean, any kind of laws, uh, uh, GMO, any kind of laws that could arguably be against future profits, which is so broad that it's, it's basically whatever they want it to be. Yeah, and, and financial re- derivative regulations on financial derivatives, which is the instrument that blew up the economy. So, you know, obviously Wall Street banks are in favor of the TPP, 
And, you know, people wonder why Obama is really trying to pass this, you know. Um, I personally am not surprised because I've never seen Obama as a progressive. I mean, he is quadrupled fracking, which is my second major issue that I fight. You know, fracking did not quadruple under George Bush, the Texas oil man president. It quadrupled under Barack Obama with his uh, U.S. shale initiative. And Hillary famously sold fracking to foreign countries as part of the global shale initiative. Um, And so why does he do these things? Because I think Obama is a corporatist, you know, and he, the only time I ever saw him got angry was when he railed against the professional left, as he called us in his, you know, in the early days of his presidency. I mean, you read this book, 13 Bankers, I think it was, by Simon Johnson, um, where these bankers were, they, they, they knew that George Bush approved the uh, bailout, the TARP bailout, but they knew that he was the outgoing president, and they wanted to make sure that the incoming president was on board with it. So they had this big meeting with Obama, and they were all ready to give up, you know, the store. They were ready to, you know, bring back Glass-Steagall, put a firewall between commercial banking and, and investment banking. They were ready to break themselves up into smaller units. And he didn't ask for one single thing in return. I mean, they were shocked, pretty much. And ever since then, you know, he plays golf with Jamie Dimon and Lloyd Blankfein, and, you know, that's who he, pal- he pals around with. So, you know, I'm not surprised, and I think that he really, right now, he is building the most expensive presidential library ever. He's trying to raise $1 billion. And, you know, this is what happened with Bill Clinton, why he became a centrist. People asked him, you know, why he was going to Wall Street to raise money, and it's like when they asked Willie Sutton, you know, why do you rob banks? He said, that's where the money is. Because union membership, which was the Democratic Party's traditional source of funding, has gotten so small over the years from the height of 30% in its heyday to now like 7% in the private sector and I think 12% in the public sector. I might be wrong about that second one. But, you know, it's gotten so small that they didn't have enough money. So he, he and the Democratic Leadership Council, that centrist group that has since disbanded, you know, they started raising money for Wall Street, and the rest is history. A lot of people like to blame the Republicans for um, re- uh, repealing Glass-Steagall, but it was really um, his Treasury Secretary, Robert Rubin, who used to be the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Bill Clinton signed the bill. Bill Clinton signed it. Yeah, he signed it. The dismantling of it. He went over, see, they did that, Glass-Steagall repeal, so that Citibank could merge with Travelers Insurance. And afterwards, who went to be the head of the combined Citibank Travelers, Citicorp? Robert Rubin. So, I mean, this is what goes on in our government, and most Americans don't know it because they just read the corporate media, and the corporate media is, has become pretty propagandistic. I mean, we all know the famous... <laughs> That's an understatement pumping us up for the Iraq war. Well, now they're, they're pumping us up for a war against Syria. I just read an article in Common Dreams about propaganda and how everything that we've been led to believe about Syria is completely wrong, that the rebels that we're supporting are the bad ones and that are doing all the damage. And Assad is actually trying to, to stop ISIS and to protect the people um, you, you've got to read this article. I'll send that to you. You can link to it also. But yeah. it's just amazing how we fall for it hook, line, and sinker. There's two things I'd like to say. One is 
There's another thing in the TPP that you haven't brought up that is, for me, is by far the scariest thing of all. And it's, all of these things are bad. The trade deal itself, you know, dismantling union rights and worker rights and all this, race to the bottom, competing with people where they make 60 cents an hour. And what you said, which is the ISDS, which is the suing for anything they want, as if they feel like it jeopardizes their potential future profits. And that it's all in a super government that is above all three branches of our government. So you don't get out of trade deals very easily. Like Brexit is, that's how they got out of the trade deal of the EU. Not a trade deal, but, um, but the scariest thing for me is that copyright is the rights of copyright. And I don't mean the, the year length. I mean the broadness of what is defined as a copyright is extended to such such a degree that even tongue-in-cheek, you know, memes or criticisms of companies can now be considered a copyright violation. Mm-hmm. And the device on which you do these copyright violations can be confiscated and destroyed if the actual language can be... The device on which the violation occurs can be copyright, confiscated and destroyed. And companies like YouTube are compelled to uh, take down uh, material just on the accusation of a copyright violation. And ISPs, Internet Service Providers, are given immunity and compelled to share user information. And that effectively takes away freedom of speech on the Internet. And that, for me, and puts this into a, tr- into a deal that's above, into a law that's above all three branches of our government. And that, for me, is the scariest thing. Well, that because no. candidates like Bernie Sanders only had a shot because of the Internet, because of freedom of speech on the Internet. It's the only well, reason no, he had a shot. That's why my third major issue, which I think we won on, was net neutrality. And I did a lot of protests on net neutrality at Obama fundraisers and the like because of that very reason. You know, the Internet is like the public square. And um, it really has had a democratizing effect on... Um, what kind of information is out there for people to find. You know, I started my career, I wanted to be a broadcast journalist, and I kind of fell into this thing called public access, which I'd never even heard of when I got out of college in 1979. And then when I found out what it is, what it was, I'm like, oh, my God, I totally want to work in that, because it was teaching people how to use television, which is the reason I wanted to go into broadcast journalism, was I thought that television was the most powerful medium for influencing public opinion and therefore affecting social change that I wanted to be, you know, a reporter. And um, when I found out that people could actually make their own television programs and not have them, you know, edited through some reporter or producer or editor, you know, I thought, oh, my God, this is great. This is like the soapbox of the days of yore because the whole purpose of the First Amendment was to get and, and free speech, not just the free press, but was to give everybody the right to speak. And it got to the point in the late 80s, you know, and of course there's been a lot more media consolidation even since then, but in the late 80s there was so much media consolidation that only if you could afford to own like a broadcast station or a newspaper chain or whatever could you have free speech. So when the Internet came around, it sort of was like public access but it, you didn't have to even go and take a production course, you know. You and you could, and, and your viewers are worldwide immediately, instantaneously. Right. Like it's not, a, it's not a matter of how powerful your antenna is. It, you can reach anyone in the world at any time. And that is why 
the, that is why this, the freedom of the speech of the Internet is threatened by the TPP is because it is such a, from, from people who want to c- control the narrative, is such a dangerous thing. Right, right. Well, that's what we were talking about before, propaganda and who controls the media. I mean, even Rachel Maddow, who I used to have such respect for, I mean, throughout the course of this campaign, I can't stand the woman now. It's like I, I cannot stand the woman for how she treated Bernie, you know, yeah. marginalized I, him and dismissed him and disparaged him. And that was the other thing I wanted to say, which I, I, sort, of, I sort of agree. I, I didn't realize how much news was propaganda. Uh, and the turning point for me was, I mean, I always knew that it wasn't, there was something missing, but it was all I knew and I grew up with, I grew up with it and I just never really questioned it. The first Bernie debate with Hillary and Bernie, that the headline was Hillary wins, you know, having absolutely nothing to do with what actually happened in the debate. It was just a pre-made story, but that was the headline for CNN.com. And yeah. for some reason, that was the moment where I realized it is all a sham. There's no truth out there at all on these major networks. You know, but you also have to be very careful about, you know, social media because social media, you just tend to believe people you trust and the sources that they post. Um, But I know that there were a lot of things that didn't happen that people said happened because I was firsthand involved with it. Like, for instance, when people were talking about how because I set up ballots for Bernie, which was a 58-county effort to monitor the ballot counting in the state of California, because despite the fact that they proclaimed Hillary the winner, on election night, only 43% of the ballots were counted, because there were so many you know, absentee vote-by-mail ballots. There were so many people that had to vote provisionally because of all the problems with um, no-party preference voters getting to vote. Right in the Democratic Party, and also people having their party switched on them. So we had this big effort, and we were going to make sure, and I I put up a couple of memes, and I literally got 3,400 people. I mean, it kind of froze my Google. I didn't realize I could only send, you know, 1,000 emails a day, but I was trying to reply to these people and plug them in. And, um, you know, all this stuff was going around about how, you know, Los Angeles County flipped for Bernie and San Francisco flipped for Bernie and there were a million ballots being shredded in San Diego and they had the picture of the shredder outside of the registrar's office and just all this crazy stuff that people wanted to believe because right. it fit into the narrative of, you know, Bernie Sanders is being robbed. Right, but, but it's, important, it's important that mainstream media in general is untrustworthy. There is true stuff out there but it is so buried and obscured by the propaganda that it's not even, in my opinion, is not even worth trying to find. But there are sources on, that you can trust. And you are, you know, you as an individual can determine whether a, a source is trustworthy. Like, for example, I trust TYT. I trust the Young Turks. You know, I generally don't, don't feel the need to question what they tell me. And, and the NakedCapitalism.com. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, there are sources that you can generally trust. I mean, of course, there's a, there's a cesspool out there as well. But, but it is also true that on the Internet, there is a piece, there is a section that you can speak generally freely. And that is not true on mainstream media, uh, almost to uh, almost 100%. 
Well, you know, I mean, let alone if they suppress. I'm very concerned about us all being so dependent on Facebook because you've seen how Facebook has taken things down, like that woman whose boyfriend was killed right in front of her very eyes, and they took that whole thing down. You know, they don't mind having other kind of violent pornographic stuff on, but when it comes to something that's questioning the state, then all of a sudden they censor it. So, you know, I remember a few years ago friends of mine who were, who were very involved with Occupy, they were trying to start an alternative to Facebook. It was called Evolved Society, and the platform looked pretty much like Facebook, and for whatever reason it didn't get off the ground. But the whole idea was it was going to be an activist Facebook, a non-corporate Facebook, and I still think there's room for that to happen because I am really, really worried about how dependent we are on Facebook. It's true. And actually, I, I, have, I mean, I, have, I, did, I was a journalist during the DMC with Facebook Live, and we were very successful. We reached, me and six other, or around six other correspondents reached 1.4 million people with our covers of the DNC, and we, you know, I didn't feel censored in any way, but we're dependent on Facebook for our network. And we would be, you know, what other really choices do we have? There's YouTube, which I haven't really figured out technically yet, but, you know, that, they're all corporate entities. They're all huge conglomerates. Well, but, I, was, I was reporting daily for a show called Project Sanity on YouTube, and, I, you know, we did it through a Google Hangout. So, right. you know, every morning I would come in at around 10 o'clock after the California breakfast and give them my, my report of the day. And um, you YouTube live with Google Hangouts, which is actually being phased out in the next couple of weeks. You have to find. I know that there's some way to do it. I just haven't figured it out yet. Oh, it's Google a little, Hangouts boom. itself is being phased out. No, Google Hangouts as a tool to do YouTube live is oh, being phased oh. out. I don't think Google Hangout is being phased out, but I believe as a tool for YouTube live is being phased out, which is a shame because it's so easy to use. Right. It's so easy to use. But now you have to go through these odd steps, which I have not figured out yet. But the good news, well, sort of good news, it makes you dependent on Facebook, but the good news uh, is Facebook is adding a critical feature where you can have a second person join your live stream. Well, the other problem about Facebook is it's hard to share it outside of Facebook because there really isn't a URL. I guess there is a URL. There is, but you can't embed the video. And I actually am going through this myself. I have my blog... I, I created a blog to go through all of my coverage on the DNC uh, and to basically create an article of every single uh, video that I did, and there's quite a lot. Uh, and I'll, I'll say the URL. It's, it's proudberniesandersdemocrat.wordpress.com, proudberniesandersdemocrat.wordpress.com. And it's already enormous. And I took the Facebook videos, which you can currently download, um, Given a couple, you know, odd steps, you can download it, and then I put it on YouTube, and then I link to the YouTube video, which you can embed directly, um, oh, and then I create hard. the article around that. It, it's a pain. It's not. It's not that big of a deal. It's actually quite easy. It, you just right click, but you just have to know how to do it. You ha just have to know how to do it. But let me ask you something. Since you were a New Jersey delegate, did you have? I can't remember. We had different whips that we organized in order to pull off the TPP protest. Was there a New Jersey whip? They came and talked to you and told you how it was going to go down, or did you? When when was this protest for Obama? Well, we did the first one on the one that we organized. Really, was more Monday night during Elijah Cummings. Elijah talk. Cummings. Uh, Elijah that Cummings. That was when we nope. actually chanted "No TPP" over. And I over wasn't. Again. No, I wasn't aware that it was coming. 
I wasn't right. aware that was coming. And actually, uh, I, I spoke to Elijah Cummings off the record, um, and he was visibly, viscerally angry at how rude, in his, in his interpretation, how rude the Bernie delegates were to him. And, I mean, it's, uh, in my opinion, you know, any protest is rude, but if you can't step back and see what's behind it and what the motivation is for it, then, you know, you, know, you have every right ironic, to be ironic because he was a protester himself, wasn't he? Exactly. Well, I don't know his history, but I believe that he was somehow involved in the African-American struggle. And for someone like that to only be stuck on how rude it was to him personally and not be able to take a step back and to, to take a look at the motivations and the, you know, the reasons of why they did that and to talk to them about what their issues are, that's so you said you talked to him off the record. That means you don't have it on videotape? He did not want me to videotape him. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, but he was, me I mean, he was, like, almost stuttering with, with, with like, you know, I mean, it was, it was a little scary. He was really, really angry. And, how you know, how like, soon after the protest did you speak with him? Was it, like, right after or? No, it was, it was the, next, the next afternoon. Yeah, or early that's interesting the next because day. I think at some point he must have composed himself because I heard a report that he did speak and say that he understood, you know, what was going on. But that may have been, he might have been videotaped saying that and he wanted to be less, you know, personal about it. But well, no, yeah, we I'm got not... criticism, I don't know if you heard this, we got pushback from people who were opposed to it by saying that it was racist of us to, you know, interrupt him. And, well, um, boy, that's real easy. So you insult Hillary, and you obviously are sexist. You insult right. someone that's but You pick whatever label is most obvious about them, and then you twist it on you like you're against that label. That's yeah. just nonsense. That's nonsense. So, I mean, whatever, the, whole reason you know. we, the whole reason we picked him was we were very worried, you know, what was all, you probably remember this, that they were telling the Hillary delegates they had to be there at 3 o'clock on Monday for an early gavel, and they were keeping us in, you know, the other convention center to hear Bernie's speech until 4 o'clock. And we're like, wait a minute, you know, this is not good. And the California Well, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say the California delegation decided that if Bernie didn't change the time of his meeting, we were going to just go over there and, you know, have the alternate stay and listen to Bernie. Because we felt we were there to do our business, and our business was... Well, we didn't know what our business was. I mean, I want to. I want to say I wrote an entire article on this particular confusion. Now, I don't know anything about the rumors of the Hillary, the Hillary delegates being told something, but of this particular confusion of should we go to this meeting with Bernie that was at two? The opening gavel was supposed to be at three across town, which is logistically impossible. But then eventually it worked out because it, the meeting ended up being at twelve thirty, and the gavel ended up being at four. But still, this is. I just, this is the first time hearing of the Hillary delegates being told something specific. Oh, yeah, but of course, yeah. but this brings up the the issue that we had at Nevada. They were told that a they were told that opening gavel is at ten, and then an opening the first vote happened at nine thirty, and everything got screwed because they passed Roberta's rules and really did really did a lot of damage and caused just a really horrible day. Well, that is, and we were story. that's that what we were worried one, about. That is one true story. They did say it was 10 o'clock and it happened at 9.30, but the person who just called me, and I've got to call her, or she's going to call me back, is Christina Hughes. She was actually on the credentials committee in Nevada, and she told me that a lot of stuff, even stuff that I said publicly on the air, was actually not the case, that Bernie did not, his staff could not have the people. 
they did not get their, their, their delegates to that meeting. They did a very good job getting them to the county meeting, and that's why they won in phase two. But then in the state meeting, they didn't have the numbers there. So, um, and then but that doesn't even necessarily that doesn't even necessarily matter because if you're going to hold a vote a half hour early while people are not settled, and the Hillary delegates magically know about it, and the Bernie delegates don't and are not settled, and some are struggling with credentials, you know that that the fact that he didn't do a good job of bringing people there that doesn't change the fact of how 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 horrible that was for them to do it in that way. People, those eighty people that didn't get the credential, you know, that were, you know, they. A lot of them just weren't eligible, and they didn't even show up to, to that meeting to challenge their credentials. So, I mean, it's not all black and white is all I'm trying to say. Right. I mean, the, the, the problem is that when you are on the defensive and you're being told that people threw chairs and, you know, uh, they were an unruly mob, and you, and you see that it was just a reaction to total unfair treatment. I mean, we saw what we saw because we were watching the live stream and all these mainstream reporters, including John Ralston, who thankfully got fired, and it was such Scheudenfrau because he was the one who talked about the chair throwing, and he wasn't he created He created the rumor from nothing. Yeah, yeah, and then he ended up losing his job on PBS because it was pointed out that it, it wasn't the case. But the fact of the matter was um, Bernie did not give us anything to do at that convention, and we were going there. A lot of people... You the know, DNC or Nevada? No, I'm talking about Philly. You know, we set up GoFundMe accounts. You know, we're raising money to go there. They were telling us to stay in the case of California in a $700 a night hotel room for a minimum of four nights. And um, people thought, you know, first they thought they were going to contest the convention because he was going to go hit on the superdelegates. And then we found out that wasn't the case. And then we found out that he endorsed Hillary. So then we thought, okay, we're going to fight for the platform. We didn't find out until a few days before that the minority reports that he got, the six minority reports that he got signed, he wasn't going to introduce them. And he said he was going to save his powder for the floor fight on the rules, you know, the superdelegates. And we got there. Like I said, I got there early. So on Sunday, I and a bunch of fellow delegates from California attempted to go and sit in in that rules committee meeting. And they only built two rooms that only seated 160 people. And most of the spectators were stuck outside. We have a lot. That was our first live stream. That was our first live stream of people being shut out of that, of that, out of that uh, oh, so platform. You, so yeah. you and I were on the same line then because... No, I, I, it was, a, it was a, a friend. It was not me. I was watching it. I was, oh. I was, there was a friend that was on that line, and I said, you must live stream this right now. Yeah. Um, actually, the person who created our network, which is called Citizens Media TV, Facebook.com plus Citizens Media TV, is Adrian Ashley, who is the oh, person yeah. that filmed the chair in Nevada. Yeah. We created this right. network to take, because a lot of people live streamed in Nevada, but she's the only one that live streamed to an enormous audience. Right. And so the, the smears of violence and chairs being thrown and vandalism, the reason that they did not take hold as much as they could have is because of Adrian Ashley. Right. And and so because because of that, we she and I created Citizens Media TV to take that same idea to the DNC, and that and and you know we provided the the amazing coverage, and she provided the audience to see it, and and 1.4 million people saw what we had to say. Ah. So ah. it it was really well, I wish it was I had known about that because you got a lot more audience than our little thing got on YouTube, but. Anyway, the point that I was going to make was at the Rules Committee meeting, I watched as 
as Jeff Weaver and Mark Lonebach, Chad Devine's partner, basically put lipstick on a pig and sold this Unity Reform Commission to the Rules Committee members as some big advancement when we all knew that it was completely non-binding. I mean, again, the members of that commission, and just for your people who are listening that don't know what that was, um, Bernie had several amendments that he wanted to get voted on that would reform the superdelegates. One would actually eliminate superdelegates altogether, and then there was another one that said their numbers needed to be reduced, and then there was a third one that said they would have to represent the way their states voted. You know, so there were all these different things, and every single one that was brought up, the Hillary appointees were told to say the same thing. You know, oh, we just found, we just got, got these, handed us to us two hours ago. We need to study this. This is not, this is not, not the right forum to reform the superdelegates. And, and so when they adjourned the meeting or they took a, a recess, and I was sitting there, I finally got into the room, and then they recessed, and that's when I started sparring with Barney Frank, who called me a McCarthyite because I happened to talk about election fraud, and that's a whole other story. And then I also had an interchange that was unpleasant with Eric Holder, the former attorney general. But, you know, what happened was we, the, the Rules Committee members went into this room, and I followed along. You know, the reporter and me wanted to see what was going to go down. And um, basically they stood up with this thing that they had um, negotiated, and it was on, like, DNC stationery as if it had already been pre-done before what happened in the Rules Committee went down, um, and they basically said, this is the best we can do. You know, this is going to really reform things. It's fine. It, it's, they have to come up with, you know, reforms by this certain date. But the thing is, yes, they have to come up with reforms, but the DNC doesn't have to adopt the reforms. And you have to wonder how many, you know, the delegates, you know, superdelegates are going to vote themselves out of existence. Well, according so, to Ben Jealous and according to Bernie Sanders, the number of superdelegates has indeed for 2020 been reduced by 60, you know, two-thirds. So I'm skeptical of that, but according to Ben Jallis and Bernie Sanders, it, that is indeed what has happened. No, it hasn't happened because the, super, the, reform, the Unity Reform Commission doesn't even have to report until January of 2018. I didn't so know I there was a relationship with that. I don't know what they're talking about. I haven't heard anything about what you just said. I'm certainly going to go Google it when I'm... Well, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll tell you offline of, of where you can find that. He, uh, but um, what was I going to say? The okay, Unity the point, Reform the Commission... What I'm trying to make is that we walked in there on Monday with nothing to do. I mean, Yeah, we were not. I agree. We were not given much guidance. I agree. And they, ne they didn't have any conference calls with us. I heard the reason was that there was a conference call with New York delegates that was infiltrated, and so they didn't want to do anything. You know, we were told we had to stay in that hotel so they could confer with us every morning after breakfast and every night after the proceedings. We were never conferred with. We were never told what to do. And so the first day was just a lot of venting. And I was kind of pissed about it, quite frankly, because our little TPP or protest was very organized. And the fact that there was so much generic booing over everything else, I felt to some extent our little thing got lost. You know, it was just another, another disruption. But um, talk about mainstream media, the only place that I could go to link the audio of what we did was Breitbart because, you know, the corporate media wasn't covering it and was trying to make everything look sanitized like it was one big love fest there in Philadelphia. Right. So, 
<clears throat> and I just posted another thing from Breitbart, you know, about uh, Jerry Brown and, and Obama meeting with farmers up in Northern California to try to, you know, get his his Delta Tunnels plan go through, which is a big power grab, you know, by rich water industry and agriculture industry that would hurt the small family farmer and also the environment. So this is another big environmental fight we have in California. And um, the only place I saw reporting this dirty deal that they just made was on Breitbart. So, right. You know, you can't just necessarily dismiss something because of the source. You have to look at who they've interviewed. And if the person that they've interviewed looks to you like a primary source, like that person was there and that person can really speak to what happened, that's how I trust, you know, what I read. Um, right. Not like a secondhand story that somebody else has repeated from somebody else who has repeated it from somebody else who's repeated it. Because it's right. like the game of telephone. By the time it gets to the last person, it's completely changed from what it started out as being. I would, I would actually say that the, the, the Unity Reform Commission, which I only heard about because of the speech on the DNC on Monday early afternoon, I recorded that, and, and I actually that's an article I wrote was her speech at how it was the most delusional, delusional platitudes of the entire convention. That like that was the the moment that defined it all for me was this this meeting of how this speech of how absolutely wonderful the the Unity Reform Commission had overwhelming support from everybody, and it's going to give the grassroots a seat at the table. And everyone has a chance to be part of this in just like these nonsense platitudes. And after it was over, I said, I turned to this, some delegates in Jersey and said, so what do you think about that speech? And they all just like said, bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. It was just the most, it was right after Bernie Frank spoke, spoke and actually right before uh, a speech that was well, very uh, nice to hear Diane Russell from Maine, which was like one of the few moments that, that was, for Bernie delegates, was like a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, I'm sure we have more to talk about, but I should probably get off and go to my next call because I'm very anxious about making sure this next TPP protest comes off well. <laughs> well, I wish you luck, and uh, thank you for sharing your story. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what an experience. It was, it was easily one of the biggest experiences of my life. Well, I'd love to talk more with you about it either offline or on another show that you do. So thank you very much for calling me, and um, I will take a listen. I will tune into your show from now on. Wonderful. Thank you. Nice talking with you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.